Welcome to the Aesthetic Doctor Podcast. We don't shy away and keep secrets here. We empower you with education, telling you the truth about all things aesthetic medicine while encouraging you to be the best version of yourself. It's time to look great and feel good doing it. This is your host, mom, speaker, and board-certified physician, Dr. Judith Forger. Hello, friends. This is Dr. Borger, and welcome to episode 46 of the Aesthetic Doctor podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Nathan Schechter. He is the owner of the New Mind Body Literacy. He is a exercise physiologist. He is certified by the American College of Sports Medicine and Personal Training. He is a precision nutrition coach, and he is a yoga teacher, as well as a expert in nonviolent communication. Today, Nathan and I are really talking about the art of movement and what movement does to your body, how movement plays into your sense of self, your sense of well-being, and your self-image, and of course, exercise being part of movement. We are talking about really what Nathan does, which is to help people build strong bodies, flexible minds, and lives they love. So please join me in welcoming Nathan Schechter. So Nathan, thank you so much for being here. And I'm really excited to have this conversation on movement, on communication, on ways that your skills that you have in this world sort of add towards helping our listeners increase the authenticity and connection with their bodies. Yeah, thank you, Jude. It's really a pleasure uh, to be here and a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. You um, work a lot with movement. Um, I know you've taught yoga. Um, you know, you have an ex an exercise background. Um, so how, how do you feel like movement can really impact people's body image and people's connection to themselves? Yeah, it's a great question and sort of a vast answer, but I'll, I'll start with like a simple story. Um, this week, actually, I had a day where I was feeling stressed. I wasn't feeling great. Uh, I did go and do, and I do all sorts of exercise because I'm also a personal trainer. Uh, but on this particular day, yoga is sort of how I started. It was sort of my gateway uh, drug to, uh, to exercise and movement. And I was in it for many years. And so it's something that I do fall back on when I want to sort of uh, change my mental state. And so I went and I just did a little bit of, you know, uh, hot yoga, a little exercise. And by the time I was done, I felt 85% better. And I just walked out feeling like refreshed, feeling like I was seeing the world, you know, clearly I felt, and I was just amazed. Now I've done this thousands of times, but each time that it happens, I'm like, how does this work? You know, and I could talk a lot about how we think it works, but it's an amazing experience to feel, you know, sort of foggy in your head and maybe your digestion isn't good and maybe you don't feel good and then have this complete transformation in a very you know I did that one day uh, just lifting very heavy weights and within a space of seconds 30 seconds you know you, you lift some very heavy weights and your whole mind clears and that experience of going like wow this makes me feel uh, so much better um, is very very noticeable and and very um, very reassuring so I think that um, you know, that that's the story that I would start to um, sort of catch people's attention or to catch my attention that, that when you're living through it, you sort of go, wait, something's happening here, you know? Yeah. 
And I, and I think a lot of those of us who exercise and I, you know, do yoga, I do Pilates, I um, do my Peloton. We all have those moments where that's what we crave. Right. And I think for me, some of the keys to getting that is really to be present in the exercise as I do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Is, and, and maybe that is why, like, it doesn't work with certain exercises for me versus with others, Mm -hmm. the ones that I can be fully immersed in and that I can Mm -hmm. be present in that I can really feel my body in. So how, how do you think, do you think it is because we're kind of shutting off that little chatter brain as is the endorphins? Is it a mix of everything? Well, it's a great question. And I think something to, you know, that we're still discovering because, you know, we really don't know um, fully um, even endorphins themselves, we don't fully understand them. Like we understand parts of them, some of them, uh, but we're still learning about them. Some people wonder about like the endocannabinoid system. Uh, there are lots of different things that are happening. And that's one of the fascinating things about sort of the exercise science world is the myriad of changes. You know, there's, there's um, I won't get too sciencey, but like there's the upregulation, you know, of, um, you know, your ability to process um, insulin, you know, through like GLUT4 receptors, right? And I always think of that like, like, a, you know, the, the sword that came up to King Arthur out of the lake, you know, they're rising up to the top and the surface, you know, of the, and it's like, you're telling me just by contracting my muscles, all of these deep, you know, biological things. And, and I never knew that, you know, growing up, I never realized, I just thought, oh, you exercise, you know, you see the magazines. I never realized that there were these profound changes, you know, chemically in the body that were happening. And yet, there's also um, a lot of other things. And I'll tell you something that's super interesting. Two, two days before we had this, I was thinking about this coming up. There was a, just a radio show, which I happened to hear on national radio. And it was two researchers. Um, and they were talking about the motor cortex, the part of the mm-hmm. cortex that controls you know, some of our gross movement, right? So this is a complex system. But they had done this research and they were sort of sharing about it. And they were saying, you know, we've gone into the motor cortex and we saw you know, where we used to think it was sort of you know, all laid out in a certain way, we found these three little areas, which nobody's really seen before, which operate differently. And they seem to connect, you know, they seem to connect to areas of the brain that are about planning and areas of the brain that are about, um, you know, uh, emotion and, you know, in monkeys, at least, maybe even to organs like your, you know, adrenal medulla and to maybe, maybe when you're anticipating movement, you know, there are things that are changing. And so what they were really saying was, this area of movement, when we look at it in a lab, it's got projections into many other aspects of the human experience. And that was fascinating to me, right? And, and who knows where that will go or how we discovered or what it will mean in the long term. But they were saying, you know, the traditional view that we have that this piece, this little tiny piece of real little estate- homunculus brain, that we all learn. Yeah, that's what they were saying. I mean, one of the things the guy literally said was, he said, you know, the, the traditional view keeps getting dented. And he said, I think that's a good thing. You know, that we keep coming back and looking at it and saying, well, it's not exactly how it was laid down in 18, you know, whatever, or the early 1900s. We're learning more about this. And for me, that's an exciting idea. But one of the reasons it was very personally relevant to me is I do a particular movement practice, um, which is sort of a mixed movement art that I developed, where it's very much about exploring what my mind can do, right? What's happening in my mind? Now, I'm moving while I do it. And I've done this all over the world in all different cities. And every time I do it, people come up and ask me about it. They always come up and say, what are you doing? Are you a wrestler? Is that the martial art? Like, what is, like, people are fascinated by the movement. And I always sort of say to them, well, it's a mixed movement art. It's called, you know, mind, body, freedom. But what I never talk to them about is what I'm actually doing in my mind 
that is creating the movement. And if you think about any time we watch like really great professional dancing or like when I saw Alvin Ailey for the first time, you watch these people, you're just like, that's amazing, right? Like you see something coming through their bodies that's athleticism, that's grace, but it's emotion. You know, there's all of this stuff in, in the movement, right? They're just dancing, they're not talking, they're dancing. But obviously there's something in us, like these you know, people are saying in the lab that connects the way that our motor system is wired up, which is you know, the motor cortex, the cerebellum, the spinal cord, all of these things, but it's wired into a deeper part of us, our planning, our emotions. And so then when a movement artist, right? We have healing artists, we have movement artists, we have scientists, we have all these people. But when a movement artist or any kind of performing artist goes inside of themselves, I've thought for a long time, you know, I'm trying, to, or a martial artist, maybe what we're doing, I've thought about this for a long time, maybe what we're doing is we're trying to control or maybe not control, but access a non-conscious part of the brain. Mm -hmm. You know, like the yogis used to do, like they could drop their blood pressure and maybe in really high performing, because that's what athletes always want, you know, UFC fighting. Can I get an edge? You know, if you have somebody who's, uh, you know, fighting at a very high level and they think the split seconds make a difference. Can I get an edge? Can I react faster? Can I get into that zone? Maybe part of what this training is about and what I've been exploring is how do I access that part of me that is more about the whole of me and not just about how do I lift a weight or how do I run and condition my heart? And so I think there is an amazing territory in there for exploration, which we don't know a lot about, whether you are in a lab or a performing artist. And so I think it's a great and open question. And what I'd like is for people to get more excited about sort of exploring it in their own lives by both exploring it on the learning side of like, wow, this is a vast and exciting area. I mean, I knew basically nothing as a kid about exercise science. And then, I, I mean, my father was a doctor, so I heard a lot about medicine. I heard a lot about the brain because he was a psychiatrist. I heard nothing about yoga. I heard nothing about exercise. So I didn't know there was this vast field, you know, that was so exciting to learn about. And then not just you could learn about it, you can go out and personally explore it. So to answer your question, I would say that yeah, we don't know. We're, we're, we often think that, you know, the great discoveries were made in the past, but there are so many great discoveries that are right on our doorstep today that you don't even know about until you hear somebody's been working in a lab for the last 20 years and they're on national radio. And you're like, wait, I've been doing something. I saw the same thing. And so when people can get to that level of excitement about, oh, you mean I can go to Pilates and experience this? I can go to my yoga studio. I can go into my gym. And I often say to people, gyms, they're like laboratories. They're like controlled circumstances. When I go in, and some people are doing kettlebells and some people are doing deadlifts and some people are doing conditioning work and some people are doing mobility and some people are doing physical therapy. I'm like, this is an office, you know, like people are exploring like the range of like what the mind and body is capable of in this wide range of myriad of ways. And a lot of times in the general public, it's sort of like, oh yeah, I have to exercise. Oh yeah, it's good for me. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm lazy if I don't do it. I'm like, you don't understand. There's like a whole nother world that people, if you could see for a moment the world of athletes and see for a moment the world of exercise scientists and see for a moment the world of movement artists or movement teachers, you'd understand that it's, and I've worked in both worlds. I've, I've worked you know, in, in law firms and office jobs and in, in big corporations, right? And I've been in this other world, but sometimes I think the beauty of conversation, why I'm so excited, I'm gonna show up in one second, is that when, when people can really get out of the, the culture and the subculture and the world that they're in, and go live for a little while in somebody else's world. Like I didn't know anything about medical aesthetics. 
but I listened to your podcast and I heard you talking, you know, uh, you know, one was about intimacy and relationships and one was about hair loss for women. And so my world started to expand. People said, what's medical sex? I said, I don't know. And then I started to, to listen because just because I met you and now I can think about medical aesthetics or how it's related to the endocrine system in a whole different way. And so I say to people, people are a doorway. And when you meet somebody new, when you meet a new person in a new world, now a whole doorway in your life can open up to show you new possibilities. And I think that's something that we're all doing. You know, the, the guy in Princeton is going on the radio and I'm hearing it and I'm in the gym and I'm coming and talking to you and somebody else hears that. And so we're all involved in this really exciting conversation when you can see it that way. And when you can look at it, as you were saying before we started, as a collaboration, that's when it really becomes something that's really, um, really supportive of what you talk about, about living your best life or living a, a life that you love, trying to discover how can I access much more of myself that's available, but in my day-to-day -day schedule, I may not be seeing it or I may not be in touch with it. It's available, but you need a bigger, a bigger context and more. And I think the other thing I want to say is, I always say to people, let your questions be your teachers. Mm -hmm. You know, if you ask questions that are relevant to you, it's going to make things specific and it's going to lead you to important discoveries. So conversations like this, asking questions, wondering about things, I see that as a great path you know, beyond just trying to get the answer or figure out what the right answer is. No, think of it as a discovery. You know, even like great physicists said, I don't know what the answer is. You know, I've been studying, I, I think I know a piece of this and a piece of that. Think of it as a discovery and life becomes much more exciting. Yeah, so that would be a long answer to your short question. I, you know, I, you said so many great things in that answer. And I think, you know, the, the, the thing that resonated with me the most is really this idea of accessing your wholeness mm -hmm. because I think like really in a way I feel like that's what we're all trying to do or you know a certain amount of people of course like we're not being judgy of anybody in their own stage but sure. I think like when we really talk about sort of ascending to that next level and living our most authentic lives and being in touch with every part of us um, a lot of that is to access our wholeness. And I do love that you brought in sort of how movement can help you do that. And I do love the embodied experience of being in your body. And to me, movement really helps that movement, breath, meditation, you know, really being able to listen to your body versus you know, so many people kind of live in their mind and they've kind of cut it all off from here on down. But I am curious in your movement practice that you do, what is it that you do? Now you've given us the teaser. <laughs> yeah, well, you need like a six week course, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a blend of like mixed movement arts. So it takes mm -hmm. different, like, so I think of movement as vocabulary, right? Mm -hmm. When we're talking, we're basically using vocabulary that we've built up over time. And then we're using like conjugation of verbs. When I go to other countries, I have to speak their languages. It's much harder because I don't have a vocabulary. I don't have the conjugation of the verbs. But you put all that together over time and you just talk, right? Now it's just talking and you're not thinking about the mechanics. And so in movement, there's vocabulary. And when you're learning um, a particular style of movement, you're learning that vocabulary. But just like you'll sometimes hear people and they'll speak sort of mixed English and Spanish or something, right? They're mixing. You can take these different vocabularies and you can, you can mix them together. Um, and people do, you know, there are many, many mixed movement arts out there uh, where people are kind of mixing a piece of that and a piece of this. Um, and um, 
then part of it, um, part, part of where it came from was, you know, there's something called a flow. So in yoga, there's, there's what's um, flowing styles of yoga. So they're called vinyasa mm-hmm. um, and, uh, or ashtanga, which is one of the original sort of flowing styles where, where movements are linked together and people are flowing through them. And as, and I started off early on practicing that. But as you get better at it, you sort of, you know, you want to do more and you want to do more fancy tricks and you want to, you want to, you know, it's sort of like when you t- play tennis and the tennis pro is teaching you to hit the, hit the ball. At some point you're like, well, I want to play, you know? And so you learn the mechanics so you can play the game. And so as I got more and more into this, I started feeling limited. I started feeling like, well, you know, the way we're teaching yoga, we're always assuming the person sort of at a fourth grade level and telling them where to put their hands and telling them where, but after a couple of years, I know that. And I want to see how I can express myself through this modality. And I'm feeling trapped by the mat. And I'm feeling trapped by the classes being the same. And so you start getting interested in different forms of movement. I got interested in handstands. And like, maybe I can throw a handstand into this. Or maybe I can. And so it becomes this expression, like you're talking about, about how can I express myself through movement, which is essentially what dance is, right? You know, how can I express this, what I'm feeling through my body? Right, but it's also in the martial arts and it's also in, in a lot of things. And so this idea of how can I flow? And then from a training background, how can I optimize this? How can I condition my body so that it, it can do this at the highest level? Or how can I um, flow? For me, what I really got interested in was a brain thing, which was there's this idea that anytime we move, anytime I move to pick up something, there's a signal that's coming, right? And that signal might be very fast and we're not aware of it. And people who are like somatic artists and they work in like Feldenkrais, they're trying to really slow people down and get them to sort of really tune into the movement. But usually we move in a way where we're not aware. And, and so there's usually the signal, but there's always a delay between the signal and the movement. And I thought, well, what if you could reverse engineer that and move as close to that signal as possible so that you weren't waiting to think but as soon as that movement was generating in your brain that you were in that place and you were just expressing it at the moment that it arose, could you, could you get that close? So you weren't pre-planning or feeling wooden. And so I started like playing with and experimenting with using this sort of vocabulary of movements, but trying to express. And if you go into other art forms, like ecstatic dance is something that people get into. That's a place where people are trying to find healing through letting their bodies move. And so I was playing with these different pieces of like, if I take this piece from this modality and this piece from this modality, can it teach me to get over my own, um, you know, lack of confidence or put me in a place where I am in that zone? So a lot of times if I think about other people watching me while I'm doing it, I can't do it. Right. And so it's very much about attention and concentration and and then athleticism and, and blending all of that together into a practice. And there are many of these kinds of practices. Many people who developed Joseph Pilates you know, was a guy who took things and he developed the Pilates method, you know, uh, gyrokinesis, another person you know, who kind of started with yoga and then developed gyrotonic and gyrokinesis. And there are thousands of these, right? Because people get very interested in these inner experiences and then their movement vocabulary and they put them together and they say, oh, well, you know, I can use it in this way. And for me, it became, you know, both fun and a sport 
and a way of investigating, you know, like you're saying, like different things work for different people. So in, in a lot of the early days, I was doing like Vipassana meditation. A lot of people around me, they were very serious practitioners of Vipassana meditation. And for a lot of people that works beautifully. I have friends, TM works great for them. They love it. They swear by it. But for me, sitting on a cushion, it, it never could give me what movement could give me. And yet that practice of moving my attention inside of me, or when I was teaching yoga, I started saying to my students, you know, these poses are happening in your mind before they happen in your body. If you really pay attention, you're actually, you're actually seeing the pose or envisioning the pose before you express it. And that's where you have the ability to create it or shape it. And then it comes through your body, right? And so this, this practice of where's my attention in my body? How am I feeling sensation? And this is something that gets really fine. You know, when I first started yoga, I was very stiff and people were like, you're gonna kill yourself. And I was very clunky and it was gross movement. But as years and training you know, went by, you get more skilled. It's like learning to sew, you get, you get much better. And so then as you get that refined set, and some people can't feel their hamstrings, right? They, they don't, you say hamstrings, they say, what are the hamstrings? You say, feel your hamstrings, you say, what do you mean? So everybody's, but when you practice something for a very long time, you get, you know, like musicians, they get a much refined sense of their instrument. And when you get to that place, you start seeing that inner world, you start feeling it, you start playing with it, and then you sort of do sort of what's, you know, kind of an experiment. And, and so it's an experiment of both the mind, gee, what's going on in Nathan's mind today? What's keeping me from being in the zone, in the moment, expressing, and then sort of, you know, the training side, the athlete side, how fast can I move? How long can I go? How dynamic can I make this movement? What can I, and then where does that lead me? Like, where does that take me? If I'm not controlling the movement anymore, like Mario Andretti once said that, he said he was driving and he drove so fast, he got scared because he wasn't controlling the car anymore. But when you're in that place, what will happen? Like, what's, what's controlling you? What are you expressing through yourself? And there must be something to it. Because people don't stop me when I go outside. People don't stop me in the grocery store. People don't come up and talk to me. When I do this practice, in every city I've ever been in, people come up and talk to me. They could be military. They could be law enforcement. They could be grandmothers. They could be kids. But people always come up and they say, what is it that you're doing? What is that? And so it's like people can see what's happening on the inside through the outside expression. They're seeing it through. I'm not talking to them. They can't hear what I'm listening to but they can see it expressed. And so that tells us that there is this space inside of us, right? Inside this sort of carbon-based electric chemical thing that we are, right? And our attention, you know, and our consciousness and then our body, where all of this, you know, is something greater than the sum of the parts, right? And, and, and that's what, you know, kind of these gentlemen we're talking about or what, what we talk about when we say that, you know, when we think about maybe possibly about how our brain works, it makes models of things. It's always making imperfect, quick, in the moment models of things. But the map is not the territory. The models it's making are not the actual thing. And so we have all these models about the body and how it works and the physiology and the, you know, the metabolism. And these are all models but the, again, I think that the idea I try to get across is like the vastness and complexity of that machine is like way beyond what, what anyone, Robert Sapolsky said this. He said, anytime you, you look at a bucket, whether that bucket is you know, the, you know, the hormones of the moment or the neuron that's firing, he said, it's a bucket, it's a momentary explanation that can't capture the whole. And we use it 
to define things in certain ways and to do certain procedures. But it's, it's not, he said, you know, that's how you define clocks. He said, when you talk about clocks, you can break them apart and look at the pieces. And it's a great way for understanding clocks. It's a terrible way for understanding human behavior. You know, because human behavior is, is something we can't capture in any one model and defies, um, it defies modalities, you know? And the way that I say that is, there's no one person, there's no one group of people that can understand the mind and body alone. And so I think there is a, maybe a yearning in all of us to kind of find that place of wholeness, right? It feels good, you know? It feels, we feel good when we're in a place, maybe it's with friends, maybe it's with somebody who accepts us, maybe it's a certain environment, but we feel like, oh, I feel, and that's what health is, I think. I often say to people, you, you recognize health because you've noticed it's been missing, right? You get to a place, you're like, I feel good. What is this? I feel whole, I feel complete. I feel, I feel really okay, right? I feel grounded. And you're like, oh, this is a moment of health, you know, in this constant undulating system, you know, which has to be adaptable to lots of different circumstances. And we have ups and we have downs and we have times of low self-confidence and high self-confidence. There are these moments where all the pieces come together. And that could be, you know, Lawrence Olivier in a performing arts saying, you know, he walks off the stage and they say, Mr. Olivier, that was a great performance. He says, he's so angry. And they're like, why are you so angry? He's like, I don't know how I did it. You know, <laughs> like I gave this great, I don't know how I did it. And so, so it's a mystery, I think, that people have contended with for a long time. And I think that it is, um, it's more like a quest. It's something that we're constantly trying to recalibrate toward. It's something that we're constantly trying to find. And for me, this modality works. Exploring it in movement and, and having it in these little chunks where I can, you know, play with it athletically and play with it in my head. That's an experimental field for me that works. For somebody else, that might not be it. It might be sitting on a cushion very still, or it might be going to Pilates, or it might be nothing to do with exercise or physicality. It might be listening to music or being in nature. But I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating, um, it's a fascinating and rewarding uh, exploration in the same way when you, know, when you lift weights, it's not really about the weights, it's about what engaging with the stress of the weights does to you. And so I don't think it's about ultimately arriving at this place or being able to explain it all, but it's like when I pursue that, when I go after that, when I try to learn more about that, good things happen in my life. My body gets stronger, my mind gets clearer, I learn things, I grow, I develop. And so I think it's like an ongoing, um, it's an ongoing pursuit in the same way that if you have a physical practice in your life, uh, it's a part of your life. You know, it's a piece of your life. It's a thread of your life. One that you can always fall back on and use as one tool to, to, to kind of make up this beautiful journey, this complex journey, you know, which is different for everybody. And yet there's a lot of similarity about kind of going through a human human experience. So I think that's what I'd say. I think there's, um, again, so many things that you brought up. Some of the things that it made me think is really one of the things that I've noticed is that when I've practiced things for a while and, you know, I um, talking about yoga, even thinking about something like a Kundalini yoga, where, mm -hmm. you know, suddenly you do feel things that maybe when you started, you thought people were just imagining. Um, and, and it's the fact that the spaces in between open up, right? When you really drop in and you can really feel it, there's these threads of space and time 
that open up that weren't really there before. And maybe that is what some of the flow state is, or it's the same with coaching that, you know, when you're able to have that response time between what happens to you and how you take it in and you respond to it is, um, you know, that there's just something like you said, magical that happens, that sometimes it is hard to explain until you have it. Um, when it becomes a threat in your life too, your body gets so conditioned to it. You know, it's like when I roll out my yoga mat and I love my yoga practice, there's just something that happens when I step on it because I've conditioned my body and my mind that for the next however long it is breath and movement and just being present and breath and movement and that moving meditation. You brought up something else that really relates to a lot of what we do, um, which is image and self-image and body image. And you said, you know, when I'm aware that our people are watching, it's kind of like once people say, you know, dance, like if it's nobody watching. And that's why it's so fun sometimes to dance with your two-year-old in the kitchen or your three-year-old or your five-year-old, because they're not yet at the like, oh, I don't look like Taylor Swift or Beyonce when I dance. You know, you just put the music on and you do the most whatever comes to your mind, freest movement pattern, you just laugh with them until you fall over. And, you know, in aesthetics, we deal a lot about body image. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, it is that judgment of how do I look? How do others perceive me? How does this come across? Well, what you described was really that flow state where you're in the movement, you're moving, you're kind of almost like dancing with your body. And I'm going to call it a dance because you describe it as such an expression of a celebration, even though I know you're not dancing. Um, you know, but word is it then again that that judgment brain kicks in or how does movement and self-image and all of that relate to sure. you? Yeah, I mean, what I hear you saying is that, you know, there's sort of this felt experience that we all have, right? Um, and, and that um, when you have a practice for a long time, whatever it may be, Pilates, yoga, dance, you know, that you've sort of conditioned or trained yourself to kind of enter into a different felt experience. And it gets a little easier, you know, with, with practice and that, Maybe if some of the um, self-consciousness, like with your kids, you know, the young kids may not have that same self-consciousness, you know, in, in the kitchen, uh, that there's, there's a different felt sense that we experience in ourselves sometimes in Kundalini or whatever. Time seems to change. Our, our, our sensations seem to change. We feel different, right? Um, and I think that is a, a powerful piece of things. Um, you had had that conversation in one of your other podcasts about the difference between feeling beautiful and the external, right? And, and you know, we know that people can have all the externals that look, quote unquote, the certain way they should for a certain age and period of culture, but feel horrible, you know? And conversely, people cannot look the way that, you know, a culture says, you know, uh, you know they should and feel good. And, and just let me throw in a caveat that, of course, you know, there are many different kinds of folks out there, you know, with many different kinds of experiences. There isn't a single answer. These are mysteries. Right, but it's useful to do a thought experiment and talk about it. Um, and and generally, we're talking about the middle of the bell curve, right? Not the extremes where people need real you know, serious help. But we'll get you know referred to folks who who deal with that. But when we're just sort of thinking about these things that come up for all of us in the day to day, and that sometimes we we contend with, um, I think those two things are there. You know that one 
there is a felt sense, right? There's this kind of, I feel low today. Oh, I feel down today. Oh, I feel low energy. I feel high energy. You, you see that just in uh, using nutrition and, and diets, right? Uh, that if you change nutrient availability, your energy level is going to vary and you're going to feel different, right? You want to fast for a really long time, you're going to feel different. You start eating again after that long fast, you're going to feel different. Nothing's changed except for the physiology, but your energy level. And actually what people get skilled at when they get skilled at using nutrition is how to surf those changing energy levels and make choices while they're surfing those different energy levels, which is again, something people don't have a lot of familiarity with unless they're a physique athlete or something like that, right? But we have very much in our human experience, these changing energy levels, these changing emotions, right? And so there's this gestalt felt sense Right. And that's part of what I'm playing with. It's, it's like I used to say to people, think of like Star Trek and when they beam up and they kind of swirl around. You have this whole body sense or, you know, what they call body schema. Right. What if we could use that? That's part of the, the things that I'm exploring. What if we could play with that sense of this felt sense that we have and use it like another sense? But the, the thing I think in day to day normal human experience that we run into trouble with um, is that. It's normal that, you know, for all of us, our minds get kind of locked into a certain state of thinking, right? And if we're feeling down, we kind of stay down for a while. If we're feeling up, we stay up, you know? Um, you know, I'm enjoying this conversation with you, so I'm sort of energized, but later in the day, I might be thinking about something or worried about something and feel, you know, lousy, right? So we're all going through that. And I think one of the things that I, as I thought about this, that I thought about is, um, first of all, beauty is a perception, right? It's a perception. What's beautiful to me might be different and beautiful to somebody else, right? Um, you know, your, your previous guests, one of them said that, that, you know, her mother had said to her, it's not just you. It's not just what you look like, what the color of your hair, it's who's looking at you. It's what's the energy between the two of you. There are all these other factors, which aren't just, you know, like your body composition, how much fat tissue do you have? And how much, like nobody asks you that. Nobody says, so what's your body fat percentage and how much water is currently inside of you? And have you measured it on DEXA scan lately? And then I'll know how to relate to you. Like nobody talks <laughs> like that, right? Because they don't want to know the material facts of your composition. They want to sort of engage with you in this both energetic way, right? But also through whatever models their mind has built up over time, and how that reacts to the models. I mean, this guy who was on the radio said a fascinating thing. He said, anytime you're with another person, there were four, four things happening there. There's you. There's the model your mind has made of yourself. There's the other person, right? There's the model you have made of them, right? Because mm -hmm. we're not actually seeing everything. I don't know everything about you. Mm -hmm. I'm making up a model of you based on the little that I know about you. So that model is not you. And so, and this is what, and, and this is where I try to sometimes talk to people and say to them, like, and, and you can see this really good in um, somebody, you know, there's another thing that somebody said was like, if you have a stroke and you can't move your arm, your arm hasn't disappeared. The model in your brain of your arm is not working so that you can move it. The map has changed. So I try to get people to see that it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. The map is not this, or people have lost uh, an arm, had an amputation, but they still feel it. The map, the model is there, but the actual physical reality is no longer there. And so when we're looking about this question of beauty, we're looking through a model. We're not necessarily seeing, and, our, and that's because our brains miss detail. 
And that's why it's so easy to get down on yourself because you're not really seeing like in a database the way the AI would say, well, you have this percentage of body fat, you have this color, you're this tall. It, it, would, it would see every single detail computed and then come up with a logical outcome. But your brain is just picking out highlights. And that's why I think, you know, movement is great because it can shift your state of mind, right? That's a powerful tool. It's one of the great things about it. But then the other powerful tool is conversation. Mm-hmm. Because what a good conversation can do is it can help you see things that you're missing or get unstuck in a place your mind always produces the same model. It always, like, if you asked me about aesthetic medicine before I met you, I'd be like, aesthetic medicine? Don't know what that is, really. Is it plastic surgery? That would be my model. Right. Now, if you asked me today, I'd say, well, there are people who deal with hair, and there's people who deal with this, and this has to do with the endocrine, and, and you know, these procedures, and botchized, and did you know that it's a, actually, you know, it's a particular thing that works in this way? Like, I could tell them much more, because my model has been upgraded because I met you and I talked to you, right? And so conversation, and you see this, you know, in the other work that I do in nonviolent communication, you'll talk to people and you'll see that people get stuck, that their thinking gets stuck. And you on the outside can see it, even if, if it's two people and they're getting into a disagreement, you can see them almost go into a tunnel and a lot of people on the outside can see it, but because of the emotions involved and the mental models, the two people kind of get stuck and you can see a way out of it, but they're so in it, they can't. And so having a wider context where you have another person outside of it who can give you new information, or which just happens normally when we talk to people, you know, but it's especially helpful if you have people who are really skilled at listening, right? Um, that can be super helpful. And I think the other thing uh, that I want to say is, you know, you talk a lot, uh, we talked a little bit about wanting to be authentic, like to live an authentic life. And authenticity actually is a hard thing. Uh, because to be authentic in, suggests risk, right? It suggests that you're putting something out there that's really meaningful to you or where you could be criticized or, and that, that, that exposes you to risk. And so it's not something that we want, it's a pretty hard world out there and I wouldn't advise people, you know, just go out and be vulnerable with everybody. It's probably not a great idea. You wanna choose your moments, you wanna choose your people. But what you see is that it's so important to, to, to be able to be authentic because when you can be authentic, you're kind of in a, in a good, safe, trusting environment, putting out the pieces and then looking at them with that. You know, first people have, people understand when people talk, like right now I'm excited. There's emotion there. There's, there are needs there. People are just saying information. Information's coming out, but emotion is coming out too. Then once the person has processed the emotion, they can step back and look at it more objectively. That's why we reflect to people what they're saying so that they can then take that breath and then look at it. And when they can look at it, they can then start to make sense of it. They can't necessarily make sense of it while they're expressing it. It's after that they can. And that's like playing with the puzzle. And that's how people start to to learn, to to grow. I'll give you one quick example. I was talking to someone who was um, saying, oh, you know, I really should exercise more and I need to do more with my nutrition. And we were talking about it. It was a back and forth conversation. And eventually they got to a part of the conversation. And I do a lot of listening usually when I'm with people. I'm doing more talking today, but usually I'm the one who listens. And then we got to a part and they said, well, it's just because I'm lazy. And I thought about it. I said, well, do you know about how professionals do this when they're trying to change their body composition? Has anybody ever told you that? Do you know how this works? They said, no, I never heard of that before. I said, oh, well, it kind of works like this. And did you ever think about 
maybe re-engineering things and doing a little bit like that. No, I never thought about that before. And, um, and I said, you know, I don't think this is a question of your laziness or your people. Often when we're struggling with something, we don't understand something, we're struggling. We start, to, it's a normal human inclination. To say, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm ugly, I'm stupid, mm-hmm. right? Because I can't figure it out. And in my frustration, I turn that frustration on myself. Somebody else enters and says, well, you know, you know, cars are a tricky thing, but here's how you can fix that problem in your engine. You're like, oh, I'm not a mechanic. That's really helpful. You know, and so you say to somebody, well, actually, this is just a common problem that people run into. And there's actually a way around this. And I didn't even have to tell them. I didn't even give them. But the next time I talked to them, they were already doing things differently because the model in their mind had changed. All I did was I just added a couple pieces of information. And I think when, when things are easy, when they're to our benefit, when they affirm us, we'll do them. But if they're confusing and they're hard and they're scary, we won't, right? So to kind of sum all that up, I guess what I would say is um, we have, again, all these tools, right? We want to feel good about ourselves, but we don't. One tool, movement, right? Maybe meditation, maybe something because you get into your body, get moving, get your physiology working for you. Learn how to do that. Right. If you if you one of the things I do is I give courses to people about how to integrate that into your life, how to use not just exercise, but training in the way people who are knowledgeable about training would use it, because once you understand it, once you take a piece of time to understand it, it gets a lot easier. If you're constantly struggling with it, it's not so easy. And so you can take as I would say to people, like you take a period of time, you put a bathroom in your house. You know you're doing a big project. You set aside the budget. You set aside the time. You don't do it in the middle of like having a baby and moving like you plan it. So plan to learn a little bit about this, learn it, and then take that with you and it will help you. Because if you do integrate that, movement is a great tool. The second thing is, yeah, we can't give you all the answers in a podcast, right? We can't know what's relevant to you and your situation. But you can take those questions and those concerns and find somebody who's a good candidate, your friend, your barber, you know, a professional, whoever, you know, somebody who's caring, who can listen, who can reflect and have a conversation. And that conversation, if you find a space in a place where you can authentically begin to gently explore that, may yield you insights that begin to free up your model. The last, actually, very last thing I'll say about that is Robert Keegan was a psychologist and he said, if you want to change how your mind is working, have a new experience. Go, don't bet the farm, don't go do something crazy, but just like have a little bit of a new experience because that's how we grow and how we learn. So I think when our minds get stuck in thinking, well, I'm this way, or I'm, you know, ugly, or I'm, that's really a fixed mindset. And it's something we all fall into, and we all will continually fall into, because it's how our minds work, trying to make these models and make sense of the world. But there are ways to shift out of them. Movement is one, conversation and connection is another. And so it's this constant game of, this is where I'm at, this is how I'm at, how do I shift? This is where I'm at. This is how I'm at. How do I shift? It's a constant, just like our bodies are constantly adapting. Our blood pressure is constantly adapting. Our heart rate, our minds are constantly adapting. And so you get skilled like a surfer, you know, learning, okay, I've, I've kind of hit a snag here. How do I get out of that? How do I, and sometimes you need a big project, you know, and you need to bring in a professional and sometimes you just need to call a friend. So, you know, that's how I would think about that. I, I love that because, you know, you really kind of summarize also what I try to do with this podcast, right? Just like you said, 
we're not going to really give people their individual answers, but it's just this idea of opening up the questions, of having new conversations, of maybe on their drive or their walk or wherever they listen, giving them something to think about. And if it resonates, they can be like, oh, let me research more than that, because you're absolutely right. You know, I talk a lot about self-image and self-image is some of my favorite kind of things to talk about because and you said it beautiful it's that model you meet about you and you can only create to the edge of your self-image so like you use your movement and your nonviolent communication and all of the tools on your arsenal to really in a way expand people's self-image right like that's how I use a lot of coaching and it's funny because in coaching we work a lot on people's models and that's exactly the term we use as like sort of almost helping them see the models that they're just something in a way made up right like it's just a made-up construct it's not the truth it's a made-up construct it can be changed and like you said to like upgrading the model so I love that without knowing these things about me, you've kind of hit them totally home. Um, I think that's a wonderful uh, place to wrap up. I love that you gave us this thought provoking kind of conversation and that you truly shared like a piece of yourself and a piece of your life's work and a piece of your heart. So thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. for. If um, before you go, and we're going to, of course, link all this in the show notes. I know you lead a lot of workshops. I know you do a lot of stuff. And we've touched on so many things. Would you briefly kind of tell people about some of the highlights of what you do and if they're interested, where they can find you? Yep. So you can find me at my website. So that's the new mindbodyliteracy.com. Um, I do private coaching. So I work with people like you one-on-one. Uh, then I do these longer courses, which are usually three or four month courses, which do help people learn um, sort of the basics of how to go from exercise, which is kind of just what we all know, to training, which is sort of using exercise for a purpose. I want to get stronger. I want better endurance. I want to use it, you know, movement in a certain way to, to really learn that basic vocabulary um, and also helping often professionals. So, you know, if somebody's a massage therapist, but they want to start using exercise in their practice, or somebody's a physician, they want to know about exercise more for their clients or their patients, help professionals um, begin to use and integrate a, a bigger understanding of exercise. So these courses are something that I offer. Um, and then nonviolent communication, I also do one-on-one -on -one sessions and I teach and facilitate that in courses as well. Um, because I think that that is a modality where the other way that we learn about these things is through practice. And that's a really nice practice because in that you're just talking about yourself and your life and you're using that to learn these sort of skills. And also it puts you in a situation where sometimes it's one on one, but as you get more experience and you work with more folks, you see that people run into the same obstacles again and again. And as you see other people who are not you, not your personality, totally different from you running into the same scenarios. You, you start to learn from that too and say, oh, these are common obstacles that everybody runs into. And I can step back and think about a strategy for that. And that's a very helpful kind of modeling too, because you start to see these models are in other people, not just in, in you. So that's sort of a- uh, Shared uh, human experience. Yeah, shared human experience. And, and, and then as a professional, you start to think, okay, what's, you know, I used to say to people, you know, and uh, when people teach exercises, they say, here are the five most common mistakes people make and here's how to avoid them you know and so you start to see that and learn that and so I think the best thing 
really is for folks to reach out and, you know, if they have questions, ask which of these might be the most appropriate for me, because everything really does start with a, with a conversation like we're having today, you know, getting to know somebody, getting comfortable with them, and then going from there is really what I recommend. So people are more than uh, welcome to reach out to me, you know, by email or social media or whatever, whatever they see fit. Well, and we're, of course, linking it all. So again, thank you so much. This was like a wonderful conversation that flew by. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing your knowledge and wisdom. It was such a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Jude. It was a pleasure for me too, really. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Aesthetic Doctor Podcast with Dr. Judith Forger. We'd love to connect with you outside of the show. Follow Dr. Borger on Instagram at Dr. Borger and find more online and ways to work with Dr. Borger at www.theaestheticdoctor.com. Until next time, be well.